Welcome to the 197th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Many of those endless acres of Midwestern corn and soybeans have a prairie in their distant past, but some crop fields have a very recent history as a native grassland. For example, when Shane and Jessica Blair purchased 20 acres of land near their West Central Minnesota farm five years ago, it had been planted to corn and soybeans for three or four growing seasons. Before that, it had been in native prairie. There are plenty of pieces of land in this part of the state that are suitable for growing annual row crops. It turns out this is not one of them. Significant slopes and a light soil make this land highly erosive, and even just a few short years of row cropping took their toll. At one point, eroded soil had even made its way through a culvert under the road, where it inundated a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service waterfowl production area. So, Soon after buying the land, the Blairs formulated a plan for getting those highly erosive acres back into perennial cover. Working with, among others, J.B. Bright, a refuge manager for the Fish and Wildlife Service, they designed a prairie planting that consisted of some 60 native species. Bright and other natural resource professionals who worked on the prairie restoration wanted to make sure the resulting grassland would be good for wildlife, pollinators, and water quality. But just as importantly, the Blairs wanted to make sure the prairie would produce good forage for their cattle and sheep. Government funding helped alleviate the cost of restoring the prairie, but Jessica and Shane needed to pay its own way in the long term. One way it can do this is by providing cheap feed for their livestock. Research and on-farm experience shows that native grasslands can be rotationally grazed in a way that not only prevents damage, but improves them by keeping invasive species in check. During a recent Land Stewardship Project field day on the Blair's land, it was evident that both the farmers and the natural resource experts were happy with the results. The restored prairie is in its third year, and it's thriving, with a wide variety of grasses and forbs growing. And as field day participants made their way through the diverse habitat, they could see the Blair's cattle herd grazing on a nearby hillside, where they were getting plenty of low-cost feed via the rotational grazing system the farmers have set up. After the field day, I chatted with J.B. Bright and Shane Blair about the strategic thinking that went into restoring a prairie that's good for the land and livestock. Shane started out our conversation by giving some background on the land and what they did to prepare it for a transition from row crops to native habitat. Okay, we bought the land uh, approximately five years ago. Yes, it had been cropped prior to us buying the land for approximately three or four years. And prior to that, it uh, it was native prairie. I guess when we bought the land, it had a Uh, had been planted into beans on those hills and the hills are steep enough to where it has severe erosion just you know being tilled yeah there's a 30 percent grade on one particular hill and it's just about too steep to drive up with any equipment so what we did is we bought it our intentions along with Jim Wolf were to plant this back into native prairie and with the help of JB and and uh, Jeff DeShane we were able to put some and some other people we were able to put some uh, a mixed design together and get out there and get that planted. But what we did to prepare that soil is <clears throat> we did till it one more time to plant oats into so we could pick some rock and get rid of some of that stuff. So we ended up planting oats in the spring, and then we let that grow to approximately a foot or foot and a half tall. I don't remember exactly the date that we planted the, the natives into it. Anyway, we, we terminated the oats at that point, and then we, plant, we no-tilled the native seed into that. So and, and it did catch well. It, it's done well ever since. And we did get fortunate with some, you know, timely rains. Did you mention there was something like, was it 50 species or it was a really pretty diverse mix? Right. There's approximately 60 species in that mix. 
Yeah, so Jamie, can you talk a little bit about that mix and kind of what, why maybe that mix was chosen and, and uh, the conditions that we have here, this is very sandy, this is glacial till, very sandy soil, not the most fertile soil in the world. I mean, it was really impressive how that stuff took off, but maybe talk a little bit about that mix and kind of what goes into thinking about what you're going to do for something like that when it's been cropped for a couple years. Mm-hmm. Well, the, they wanted to get a good fast catch, and so the mix was um, maybe a little heavier than uh, a normal mix with those early arrival species, the black-eyed Susan, can of wild rye, uh, yellow coneflower, and anise hyssop, uh, and then it was also um, a little higher seed count per square foot than what we uh, typically do, uh, about a 40 seed per square foot mix. And I believe this one was 60 to 70 seeds per square foot. I think those were two factors that helped it get a good catch. And it also helped to have, uh, I think, the oats there and just uh, the organic matter. And the, there was soil activity, you know, from that, that cover crop of oats. Then as far as the mix, knowing that it was going to be perennially grazed in some rotational fashion, we made sure that there weren't um, species like prairie larkspur that, uh, or uh, death camas, you know, that are toxic to livestock. We also made sure that there was a good composition of what we call grazing decreasers because those are the plants that actually um, are most sought out by livestock. Grazing increasers are the ones that aren't as desirable and uh, will, under the wrong kind of grazing plan, uh, take over a site. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to have the meat and potatoes species in there for the forage. But then we were also looking at it from a wildlife standpoint too, and that's why we went with the high diversity, you know, was to meet a wider variety of wildlife needs. And then um, it also will help with the, with the grazing in the, in the summer, in that dormancy period of a lot of your non-native cool season species, uh, this thing will be going gangbusters, you know. It's got pollinating plants from uh, the, the earliest end of the growing season to the end um, of the growing season for pollinators. So, Well, I, that's a really good point that you guys are making is talking about that mix. So you're a farmer, you're raising livestock, so it's different than if JB was just uh, establishing something on some public land, you know, a wildlife refuge or a WPA, that kind of thing. So you do have to strike that balance of forage for cattle and wildlife habitat, that kind of thing. Right, yeah. You know, and I guess if it were up to me, we would make everything grazable. You know, I mean, that's the ultimate goal as far as a farmer goes. I mean, we feel like grazing is definitely a benefit to every piece of land that's out there. Um, doesn't matter if it's cropland or if it's a prairie land. It definitely has its benefits for for the land itself you know and we can we can create some income off of that land also by running cattle or sheep or you know any kind of species of animal out there so and they do well on this particular grazing mix that we put in this is the first year that we have really grazed on it to speak of i mean last year was some we had some grazing in the fall but as of now they've been out there and uh, very content with what they're grazing i mean they do they're very nutritious mix yeah and it looked like they really were well we were noticing even the ragweed. I mean, they're they're getting feed value off of that, it seems like. I mean, it, it really does seem to be. I think people, when they think of that pasture, traditional pasture system, they want to see, you know, that nice green, certain height kind of thing. And this is different. It's a prairie kind of thing. So it's, yeah. it's really interesting. A lot of people think of, of a pasture just in terms of grass. But the the non-grass is the, the flowers, the, um, what we call forbs. 
they there's a lot of nutritional value in those. I think Maximilian sunflowers like 22% protein or something. Um, a soil health expert that was here, um, soil scientists pointed out the secondary metabolites that are in a lot of those broadleaf plants, and they may not eat the, the that you know certain broadleaf plants down. They they might just nibble half a dozen leaves or something, but they're getting those critical components that they need to maintain their health because those plants will have compounds in them that help them deal with parasites or things like that. So it's about diversity, really. And, uh, you know, if you think about what was here when the bison were here, you know, it was a native prairie, you know, and uh, they did just fine. Well, that's you bring up that diversity because you, you guys have both talked about this, how this is an example where having good diversity benefits the farmer, and if it benefits the, the the wildlife manager, the person who wants to see more wildlife on the land, talk. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like in, in the case, Shane, of your situation, why is having that diverse system? I think you had talked a little bit about building resiliency almost on your farm, or how, how that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I I think JB touched on it here just a little bit about basically be, becoming resistant to certain bugs, um, whether it's worms or parasites. Just having that mix. The way that that mix is designed and the way the animals eat it, it just develops that in their gut. And the healthier that gut is in that animal, the better health, you know, the better the health is going to be. So we've noticed that greatly, you know, just with our animals, just being out on a pasture with a more diverse mix, that we have much less health issues. They're just a healthier animal altogether. Now, the other thing is, you know, if we can run uh, cattle on that ahead of some sheep, you know, we run both cattle and sheep, so... You know, that's a, a good way to utilize different species of grasses and, and forbs and different things out there. So it, it definitely helps as far as, gra- ra- you know, grazing sheep and cattle together. Well, so. and you had mentioned later, I think when we were over looking at some cover, a cover crop field you have, how important it is for you to be able to figure out how to manage water. Because when it does dry out, this with these hills and the sandy, it can really dry out. And then you really need to be able to have a, the ability to kind of retain that water in the system. And this sounds like this can kind of help that. Yep, it definitely does. You know, and we're a, at this point, we're no-till on pretty much everything we have. And we just have noticed a lot more water retention just for that fact. You know, you know we go out there, if you were to, to till that land in three days, that top four inches would be dried out, just bone dry, blown away. And uh, we've been able to eliminate that by just doing no-till. So it, our crops come a little bit quicker to start with, just for that reason. And just with having that mix and that heavy cover out there, it definitely helps as far as moisture retention. I just wanted to ask you one other question, JB. Um, you, I've heard you talk about this before, and you mentioned today again. You really are a fan of this of kind of rotational grazing system where you don't do it the same every time, and it kind of creates that heterogeneity on the landscape. Talk about why that's so important. That's That was kind of a new concept the first time I heard you talk about it, about having a diverse, not only diverse of spe- diversity of species, but of heights, that that's important to wildlife too. Different grassland birds have different um, structural uh, tendencies, I guess, or preferences. And so when you have a, a greater variety of structural height and density on a site, you're going to be meeting the needs of a wider variety of birds, you know. So and then, you know, from a livestock standpoint, having that diversity, you know, and that deeper root structure and everything, uh, when we get into it, if we get into a drought situation in July, that stuff's going to still be going gangbusters because there's still moisture six, seven feet down. And I think it's like for every 1% increase in um, 
organic matter, uh, you get 25,000 gallons per acre of water holding capacity, you know. So just in my 15 years here in Morris, I've seen this gradual move to no-till, to cover cropping, just a lot more attention to soil health and organic matter. And for the guys that are willing to think outside the box a little bit or, you know, break a mold, it's encouraging. For more on LSP's work helping farmers get more continuous living cover on the land, see the Chippewa 10% Project page at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.